Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. You can check out the radio version of the show every Tuesdays and Thursdays at 2 p.m. Eastern on WDJY 99.1 in Atlanta. We also air on a podcasting network in Los Angeles called the 405 Media. There's a TV version of the show that airs on KMVT 15 in Silicon Valley at 8 p.m. Pacific on Tuesday nights. Both versions of the show air in other states. For these show times plus past episodes, please visit the show's website at buildingthefutureshow.com. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com. Join me at the 10th Annual Media Excellence Awards on January 18th in Beverly Hills, California. The attendees and I will be celebrating innovation and leadership in technology and entertainment. There are 20 award categories with 1,000 nominees. These awards honor those who are creating groundbreaking technology to better our lives and celebrate the hard work, determination, and brilliance in the leadership within the companies which create the new world we live in today. I will be recording nominees and winners at the awards. For tickets and more information, go to MediaXAwards.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Allison Dollar. She's the CEO of the Interactive Television Alliance and a founding board member of the Media Excellence Awards. Allison, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Kevin. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I think what you've kind of done in the past is, is really interesting and kind of innovative and what you continue to do. But maybe before we kind of get into all that fun stuff, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Yep. So I grew up in Annapolis, Maryland, which is a historic town. It dates, you know, colonial era. Very cool. Uh, which is interesting because it is a crossroads. You've got the Naval Academy there, but you also have St. John's College, which is one of the oldest Socratic dialogue uh, institutions in the country. I think it was founded in like 1640 or something. And they're wow. literally across the street. That's cool. So I think a lot of, and then of course the uh, international boat shows are there, and it's a small city, but there's a lot of confluence of things, and that seems to have been a background point for the rest of my career, actually, where many different forces have come together, and they've involved both new and high tech as well as traditional storytelling and all that sort of stuff. So I think that was a great place to be. Uh, which is kind of counterintuitive because it's not a media center. Sure. Yeah. No, that's that's really great. So you went to college and then to university. What did you kind of take there and why? Well, it's interesting because my, again, similar to uh, the first point. So my father was a college professor okay. and my mother is um, psychology and uh, very liberal arts heavy kind of family arts and, and all of that. And I went to um, college and I was an English major and I almost was a marine biology major. Oh, I love science. So I always loved both sides of things. But I thought, you know what? I love literature and I'm a really good writer and I'm just going to do what I want to do. Sure. So that was kind of the first salvo of being a little bit uh, radically independent because everyone's like, you're not going to ever make any money. <laughs> Which, you know, to some degree, it, my, the financial part has gone up and down, up and down, but I've loved what I've done my whole career. So I, I went to the University of Virginia for grad school right out. I got out early okay. of, uh, of AP credits and everything, and I went straight to grad school, and I got out of grad school early. But what was interesting is while I was in grad school and I was studying literature and doing all that, I worked for Ross Spears 
on a documentary. He's an Oscar-nominated documentarian. Sure. And um, in the course of that, I did some research for him and all this kind of stuff. But he asked if I wanted to help edit. And I thought, oh, sure, I'll help edit. Well, you know, it was back when it was done on the tables. And, uh, you know, you actually had to splice, cut and splice film and uh, tape it together, That's right? That's really cool. Yeah, sure. Yeah, well, it's really cool, except for I have completely no small eye-hand coordination on that. I'm a very impatient person, and I very quickly, it was an I Love Lucy moment, basically, made sure. a whole mess for him. Like, it all, like, spooled out, and I was like, <laughs> oh, my God. And I thought to myself, haven't you people heard of computers? Interesting. So, you know, this was the mid-80s. I was like, what did, why is this still being done this way? And I didn't buy it that the handcrafted. I didn't buy it. And so, you know, fast forward to when I was editorial director of a magazine that covered the film and television industry, one of my uh, first jobs out of school, I right away when they brought in digital nonlinear editing, Avid and data translation and all that, I thought, well, this is the future. It's all going to go digital. I understood, even though I've not an engineer, uh, and I think often, you know, you don't, it's a nice thing about this, you don't need to be technically um, versed to understand with critical thinking skills that you do get in liberal arts educations, what the implications for this technology is. Sure. And so, you know, I had done some work for um, CBS on the local level, basically amb ambulance chasing late night news, you know, PA work and uh, the Maryland Film Commission and some other stuff. So I had been on sets. I'd been out and around. But when I got to go to post-production houses and go on a lot of other sets and be more immersed in production and the trends in film and television through this magazine work, um, uh, and I went in there and I was basically promoted right away and um, then just re focused and reorganized the whole thing editorially so we were covering emerging trends in technology. So we were predated wired of covering all this stuff, including touchscreen and early VR, yeah. the first wave of it, yep. And this was back in the CDI, Laserdisc days. Sure, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and at the time when the uh, internet came, um, many people like who will try to rewrite history, but there were many prominent people who said that the internet was a fad and they yeah. did not believe the web was going to have any impact. I interviewed Tim Berners-Lee. He was delightful. And uh, awesome. I, I totally saw it. I was like, well, we're going to have video in the, in the cloud, uh, which we did not call the cloud, of course, till sure. much later. And it was all very clear and there was a lot of pushback. And so I really mixed it up. I was young and um, I didn't really... I, of course, gave some lip service to our legacy advertisers at the time, who I will say will just, uh, without necessarily naming names, but sure. you might know who they were, but yeah. they're basically, you know, the blue suit people, and um, they didn't want to hear it, and of course, to their own detriment. So some of them survived, but a lot of them didn't, or they had to um, remake their whole corporations, and those of us who, as the phrase used to be, did they get it or not get it, right? What's sure. happening? And, you know, fast forward 20 years later, um, we are where we are. Sure. So walk me through a bit of your career up until you basically 
founded and now kind of the CEO of the Interactive Television Alliance. Yeah, so in the course of, of covering all these things, uh, I went to every major post-production house in the country and many abroad as well. Okay. Uh, so you get to know a lot of people and you see what's happening. And um, so I was asked to do programming for NAB. Uh, I chaired the executive committee for NAB to launch what was then called Multimedia World and eventually became uh, the South Hall here in Vegas oh, and brought some of the uh, bigger players like Microsoft to the floor um, that weren't hadn't been there before into the broadcast world. And um, uh, so that was kind of how I got into doing conference programming. Some of those other things that last to this day. And I had a conference called ETV World with uh, Alan Brody, was the founder. I was a partner with him on that. That lasted for many years. And we had all the major advances in uh, television, interactive TV, advanced television, which was also not a phrase used at that time, through the 90s. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I started working with startups because that was natural since I already loved all the cutting edge things. And I was the uh, chief strategy officer for webcast.com that went public as a merger with iBeam Broadcasting and some others that went public in that whole bubble, which was a crazy, crazy time. And then literally all the one year, everything happened at once. Um, we did go public. The bubble burst. We had my father died, which was not incidental to some of these things. And... Um, we started the ITA because there was not a trade association where all the players were in the same room. Now everybody does that, but you know, back at the end of the 90s, you had either the consumer electronics people did their things, the broadcaster did their, the cable did theirs, the advertisers and the tech, high tech, they were near the twain shall meet at that time. So that's why... Um, we were asked out of this other committee, the Addressable Media Coalition, which actually came out of direct marketing and some other things, asked uh, to us to start it. So Ben Mendelson and I started this organization. And it was all the major players, um, Open TV and Liberate and Wink, uh, some of whom have gone away and a lot of them merged, in fact, right away, uh, as well as, um, you know, that's, uh, you know, John Malone and all those kind of companies. Okay. Um, but of course, you know the big players we had right away. So no, Disney, TiVo, sure, sure. you know, all the usual suspects. That, that's awesome. So, how did you guys, or how did you kind of bring all these people together, though? Because to your point a few minutes ago, they were kind of in their own little kind of silos, right? Yep. Well, you know, <laughs> of course, I'd love to say it was all based on my my uh, powers of persuasion and personal charm. And of course, Ben uh, also himself is, is a character in that regard. But it really was because um, there was a vacuum there and conversations needed to happen. Okay. So they, they knew that they had to find out well where advertisers and brands and agencies were thinking as the evolution of media buying was clearly on the table and still hasn't gotten to where it should be, although now there's amazingly better tools for doing that. Predictive analytics was not even a term at the time, right? Sure. Uh, and then there's all this profusion of technologies and what was going to happen with set-top box or not, you know, some of which, of course, has not been addressed still to this day. 
Uh, but I think every, they realized we got to get this going. I mean, we at the time, if you remember, the U.S. hadn't even um, ratified the digital transition. Yeah, so sure. that was yeah. one of the things we did. We filed an amicus brief on that to make it, make it a reality. It's like, why is the U.S. behind in this when we're the leader in media? It's, And some of it, of course, is executives are fearful because their individual paychecks are uh, dependent on them not making a mistake uh, because, in my opinion, Wall Street drives too many business decisions of sure. the short-term earnings. And, and then there's, of course, just social issues of, oh, well, it's how it's always been done. And, uh, you know, there's inertia. It's just human nature. But I think the timing was right to have those conversations. We had some really seminal invitation-only retreats we did for several years, for instance, at the Queen Mary, and we um, did some others at Catalina Island and co-located. In fact, when we were founded, we co-located at the cable show in New Orleans uh, so this is all historical things that are, unfortunately are not documented as well as they could have been because it was predating social media, sure. uh, which all of us forget because it's not really that long ago. But, you know, it, so much change in that intervening decade. No, I 100 I percent agree. That's that's interesting, right? Like, I, I love kind of just how things kind of come to be so. You've been doing kind of the, you know, ITV Alliance for, what, 16 years now. How has it kind of changed and evolved and, and kind of what do you guys do today? Yeah, well, you know, the thing is everybody else uh, did get religion, so to speak. And so it's not so unusual to have all the players in the room. And in fact, in way conferences or programming have, have been programmed or forever changed that way. Um, so that you see the mix of people on a certain session, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so we're mostly trying to support all the efforts of actually way to the edge, particularly in the business model and getting deals done. So a lot of it's behind the scenes and we also uh, support all of our other organizational partners like the Consumer Technology Association that does CES and NAB and uh, many other things. And I myself, uh, kind of relentlessly, I would say, I wouldn't say tirelessly, but I would say relentlessly push the edge on the technology integration of the emerging players and like to support these, the new uh, little guys that have a lot to offer. So I'm on the um, Los Angeles Venture Association. I chair the digital special interest group and do programming for that. Uh, Expert Dojo, which is another startup program in Santa Monica, lots of those kinds of things where they cross over. Sure. And then I guess you also, it sounds like, have the connections for somebody that's building a startup into these kind of bigger players in the industry. Is that fair to say? That is. Oh. And, you know, I I don't really want to ever do straight business development, but if things do, I do more corporate strategy. But part of that packaging is doing those kind of deals and making those introductions in. And frankly, that is uh, in part how ITA came together and continues to roll along is, you know, if you're in it long enough and you don't veer away and you're uh, visible in a certain respect, um, you do know a lot of people. And the people who fall in love with this stuff, they don't leave. So some of us literally have known each other for almost 30 years. And it's 
really fun to be part of a community that is making history. And some people are more visible than others. I mean, I will say, uh, you know, for my sins, I don't even really post in Facebook (laughs) (laughs) what I'm doing. You know, I but there are a lot of my peers that do and we all but we all know each other. And uh, it's been really fun, you know, on top of everything else, very engaging, invigorating and always fascinating to see. Uh, and, and it's not, um, I'm sure, not lost on you that still a lot of them continue to sue one another. Yeah. So, you know, you have the must carry stuff. Now you have the net neutrality fights. It's um, it's beyond calling it family squabbling, but there is a, one aspect of it which where that is accurate to say. So, no, I, yeah, it's interesting. And, and like, I think for somebody like myself, I, I kind of basically and i'm kind of a well i'm very much an outsider to the kind of whole kind of media space like i kind of come from a tech background work at startup kind of been in kind of more on the internet side of things my whole career and i've only really started doing this show two and a half years ago right and there's a radio version there's a tv version and and so for me i don't even really know the rules or like what you can and can't do and so when you read about some of the stuff happening in the industry, it's so kind of like mind boggling to me because I come from it from like the tech kind of disruption space where, and I was having this conversation the other day with somebody, it's like, there's some people, and especially like younger people doing startups or older people doing startups that don't come from that industry. And they're literally just saying like, I think this is broken and I'm just gonna do what I can to, to make that, like to fix that problem. And I don't really care who likes it or doesn't like it. And it sounds like you're kind of working with some of those people to kind of change well, the I, perception. Well, I am. Yes, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, I I haven't ever been beholden to any corporate master myself, nice. right? So I was a journalist. I've done or- trade associations. I've done programming. I mean, I've worked with startups directly. And a lot of times I have had management roles or interim management roles. And um, I enjoy being radical. And I have never felt the need to apologize for it. And I so, you know, like attracts like to some degree. And there is the point of the emperor's new clothes that does run throughout where, yes, there are certain reasons that are technical, certain things that are legal, and other kinds of... um, elements that are restrictors, but there is a large degree, probably 70% of it is just cultural um, habit that does not, there's no reason for it, to your point. There's no reason for certain things to be structured the way they are, for compensation to be the way where they are, for the internal silos. In fact, that was the point of my book. I wrote a book in 2003. Uh, that was published by Focal Press um, for NAB about the remaking of television. And that was my point. Is like you can, as a, a senior executive teams, you can go on your retreats and just restructure your companies. And everyone's like, you are freaking us out, basically. <laughs> right? 
sure. because they, but again, because they're afraid if they if there's disruption internally and there's a feeling of chaos, everybody gets anxious, they're going to lose their jobs. And also, oh, if there's a dip in earnings, then the street overreacts rather than and I guess this is my soapbox taking the long view on this stuff and saying, yeah, you know what? You might you might not make as much money for a few quarters till you start going in the direction you need to go, but then in the long run, you'll make more money. If you take advantage of the efficiencies that these new technologies afford and have a broader worldview on how to work with partners in co-opetition and also internally how to incentivize your teams to work together across the silos because I see it again and again when the teams sabotage one another in-house. And... um, you know, it's just ridiculous. But that is the luxury, if you want to put it that way, of having been an insider with no other axe to grind. So it it has helped me. I don't think there's anything special about me. It's just that position has allowed me to have a certain perspective of clarity. And now, personality-wise, I will go on the radio with you and say it. Um, so some people wouldn't. Sure. But, you know... They all know it's true. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I think the thing that's interesting to me about the whole space and is everybody seems to think, well, not every, I shouldn't say everybody. Like, There's a lot of people that think it's like all doom and gloom for like certain kind of verticals in like either like FM or, or cable television. And I'm like, I don't really think it's as negative or as it really is. It's like things need to change, but people still want to watch live TV. They just potentially want to watch it on their phone or tablet or maybe in another part of the world when they're traveling. And if you're going to block that, people are going to figure out a way to unblock it for themselves legally or illegally. And and I think it's kind of interesting. Like if for me, and it's maybe my soapbox kind of rant is like if I pay for content, why do you care where I watch it, on what device I watch it, and geographically where I am? Do you kind of agree with that? Well, you know, there have been many initiatives to purportedly make that happen. And, of course, there's no serious person in our industry who wouldn't say anytime, anywhere. I mean, that's been the watchword for 15, 20 years, right? Yeah. Um, but the idea of using, for instance, micropayments or other kinds of uh, more fluid and organic ways of compensation and how these contracts are done, that's still being disrupted. There are, fortunately, a lot of really interesting software as a service kinds of plays right now that are um, helping to facilitate that to be able to happen in a much more easy way to think of it all as a publishing model where you're pushing to all these devices and being because the data has already been collected in the set-top box side. Yeah, you know, and then you've got the competitive issues of, for instance, of that data collection, um, even among like the Comscore versus Nielsen and all those sort of things. Um, so people do feel like there's a has to be a winner and loser. Uh, I, I, you know, which is I don't think is true. And the other aspect of this again is human nature. So it's like, oh, this is hot. Now this is hot. Now that's not hot. Again, uh, and not to bash on the VCs, but a lot of things are driven by them. 
Okay. So they get all interested in a certain sector and then it blows up in terms of valuations and overvaluations of things. And then it's like lemmings. They herd over to some other new, you know, right now. So the Bitcoin and before it was VR. Now AR is like really, you know, that to me, I think that's tiresome. Okay. um, Just as an industry practice. But yes, I absolutely agree with you. The consumer because of the power of the of mobility of these devices and the ease of access through the cloud the consumer is firmly in the driver's seat in terms of be pushing um the integration of the stuff and there's a lot of interesting behind the scenes playing going on right now that i think that's all just going to accelerate in the next few years and these these companies are going to have to remake themselves faster than they want to and that's just that's just life, you know? No, I 100% agree. And it's interesting because like I pay for, like I live in Canada and so I pay for regular cable because my wife loves watching just regular cable. But I also pay for like YouTube TV, which is not available in Canada. And it was a little bit of a workaround to, to get it working. And I watch that all the time. And my favorite, my absolute favorite thing about that service is... I can have my PVR content accessed anywhere I am in the on the planet. I just have to say, I have to tell my Android phone that I'm in LA, which is not that hard to do. But like, so for me, it's like, I just, I don't, I'm fine paying for content, but I want to watch it when I want to watch it. I, I like, I find it really difficult to like 7 p.m. every Thursday to watch a show. Like it's, I might watch that show, you know, Sunday night at, 11 p.m. you know and, and so yeah it, it, it's it's I think the thing that I find interesting about being a little bit of an outsider not really being in the space and kind of coming from a tech side it's like I think people really just they, they don't understand right why it's such a big issue to like put stuff on and let me allow access to all this stuff because like if you look at streaming services from the music side of things one of my absolute favorite things is I, you basically have access to most recorded things back for the last like 50 plus years, right? Where like TV's not there yet and, and, and movies aren't really there yet. And I hope they get there one day, but it just seems like such a big issue compared to like traditional kind of, you know, albums. Do you kind of see that as well? Well, there is of course, you know, the legions of lawyers who, um, as well as, to be fair, the legacy issues just in terms of, again, management. You have people whose job it is to answer to their boss uh, what any number of viewers are going to be and who they are demographically at any given time because otherwise the brands are at a loss to know how to give them money. So remember, the advertising pays for all of it, and even the subscription rates is really not offset by the huge amounts of trillions of dollars they're talking about in ad buys. So that's really where the that uh, crux of the matter lies, and there are going to be some pretty significant advances. But I want to address back on the earlier point about the living room experience uh, being 
being poo-pooed and sort of dismissed as, oh, well, now everyone just wants to watch on their own little small screen wherever they happen to be. And I do think there's going to be a renaissance of shared and co-viewing on big screens. Okay. And I see a lot of interesting plays out there uh, to allow people to watch together, even if they're um, remotely based. Okay, And all kinds of things like that that, that are actually enhancements uh, and, a, and certainly an important subset of all that, what we call interactive television and um, under that umbrella. And I probably would say just uh, sort of to step back for a second, our view of interactive TV are all those things that are using the back channel. Okay. So originally it was DVR, right? And all the way up through uh, shared viewing and enhanced actually activity and engagement activities uh, in with a live program and everything in between. So that's my definition of interactive tech TV. Okay. So even just targeted advertising, advanced advertising, programmatic, that's all part of that in ITV universe of delivery in a personalized way where the consumer has a locus of control. Sure. Uh, and, and, you know, see, even there, there's always debates on whether that's the case or not the case but that's my personal position okay well i'm curious then i remember reading about it was probably like five maybe ten years ago where there was or at least they were trialing where you're watching a show and like you could literally buy and order you know an outfit somebody was wearing or a table and they were going to somehow tie it to your phone or or the internet somehow like do you ever see some of that stuff actually being reality where instead of maybe like as a secondary kind of way to monetize some of the stuff, you could actually just, you know, order from Amazon or somewhere, you know, and have it show up a few weeks later or days later, like an outfit or something that you saw? Uh, yeah, so it's already happening now. It's just not in a widely deployed and people don't know as much about it. And I think that I had told you an example of one that, uh, we had done with a major studio where it was digital hotspotting and you could order, uh, click on the item with your remote control sure. directly yeah. on the image and order straight through to a shopping cart. But uh, that is has to happen because advertising is in flux, but it's in great shape. In other words, the brands need to reach people through advertising and they are turning increasingly toward experiential um, marketing kinds of plays where they are tying in place-based experiences with augmented reality and all of those kind of immersive experiences as well. But the campaigns and, and messaging and things that have come out of the 30 and 60 second spot world are not ever going to go away. And 30s and 60s won't go away for a while. But what that does mean, though, there has to be a multiplicity of revenue streams for everybody all the way along the line. There has to be a way to make at least micro payments all the way through rather than these big chunk of distribution that we had had heretofore. And so that means that there must be transactional opportunities for brands and for goods and services all the way along the line of a consumer's experience of video. Sure. And those so there wouldn't necessarily have to be brand in or product placement, but there's going to be targeted and 
uh, addressable ads as well as offers and coupons and all manner of things for all those revenue streams to be added onto the pie. Okay. So you, you mentioned kind of that you could do it with like on a, on a Blu-ray, but was part of the challenge maybe um, got solved may, maybe when there's like smart TVs came along that could actually connect to the internet? Like, does that solve ha- kind of the technical challenge of that? Well, you even before that, you didn't it necessarily, uh, yes. The short answer is it certainly makes it more efficient. Okay. Uh, It wasn't really a solution that was, it was more the players in search of a problem. Okay. um, Because there are, again, so many licensing and rights issues and how do you do seamless ad insertion that's targeted and all that addressable kind of thing that actually there's a lot of players that have been acquired already by some of the majors for this very reason, because they've perfected that part of it. But yes, I mean, anything that you can, where the cloud is either uh, housing uh, that content uh, or where it's an intermediary, because in a sense, you think got to think about satellite and, and how cable and satellite have played together, even though they don't like to admit it, uh, you know, historically. And then some of the new things that are happening in broadcast and over the air itself. Uh, ATSC 3.0 and some of these standards that do allow for more interactivity and things to ride through. So, um, you know, the short answer is yes. And I think part of it goes back to the start of this conversation, which is just changing your mindset about what does it mean when things are digital. Right. And uh, having the fluidity and saying, all right, so now because the consumer behavior is what it is and is never going back to the old way, then the actual business model and the structure of the actual management of these companies has to mirror the consumer behavior, not the other way around. And that's the major shift that has happened in the last 15 years. Sure. And then I I think it also gives them the opportunity to monetize old content, right? And potentially break into new markets through the internet, maybe even other countries that maybe never saw their their catalog before. Is that fair to Absolutely, say? Absolutely, because, right, when you have metadata and things are searchable and they are able to be packaged in much more innovative ways because it's just literally easier to move things around and to search for them and to have a predictive uh, model of how much they're going to be consumed based on other big data that's been collected only recently, really, on people's habits and their choices that are not demographically driven, they're psychographically driven. So you have sports fans that are all shapes, sizes, colors, religions. You have people that are fans of fashion that are all shapes, sizes, colors, and religions. And to think of the whole business in a different way. And so once you make that shift, and that's my point about the emperor's clothes, and whatever other analogy you want. Once you make that mental shift, then as a business person managing these entities, then there's lots of other ways to structure your company so that you can take advantage of how things are rather than fighting against it or trying to outrun it. And uh, I do see that overall the industry is in a much, much different place. And that's why CES is as big as it is. That's why all the media startups are just the number of them I've seen in the past like three years has exploded, and uh, we're in a really exciting time. 
I'm part of my mission here at CES is uh, to be with Sprocket, which is a another startup organization that marries together um, the big media companies and media startups. Okay. So that's how gran- granular that's gotten. And uh, I urge anybody to go check it out and see what what those startups are offering, and it's completely along the lines of this discussion today. No, that's that's actually really interesting. I, I think the interesting thing that I noticed just reading kind of the news coming out of CES was the like roll up um, 4K screen that looked really cool to me. I don't know if you got to see that in person or yeah. not, but it yeah, cool. well, all of that, all of that stuff, and that's the thing is again, typically in the back in you know. 80s, you'd say, well, you have this AV industry, and then you have this industry, and then nothing ever was connected in terms of the consumer's experience. But when you think of the 360 reach of digital media in the course of the daily life of a consumer, then it all has a different uh, picture because, like, okay, I leave my hotel room, there's a screen in the elevator, and though there's a screen in the lobby, then I get an alert on my phone. Then I'm somewhere where there's some AR and I get other offer and experience to do something right then. Oh, no, you want to watch something? You do this on your tablet, right? And so all of the industry is much more interconnected than when it was, than it used to be, which is why you have so much media EF. Sure. And you're not just looking at vacuum cleaners anymore. <laughs> sure. No, that's interesting. But we're kind of coming to the end of the show, and I really want to kind of cover your involvement, well, it was the Mobile Excellence Awards, now it's the Media Excellence Awards. How did you kind of get involved originally? Because you've been in involved with it from the beginning. Yes, well, the founder, Sarah Miller, was, uh, uh, first of all, a friend of mine. Okay. And uh, she's quite a high-energy uh, mover in her own right. And she saw that, that mobile was being underserved in terms of recognizing where all these things were. And course that uh, I'm connected to many of these folks in the digital side and uh, yeah so I thought it was a great idea and of course it's evolved over the years because mobile has just blossomed with the advent of video um, not coincidentally and uh, that all these other things have been used as second screen and also as device for activating all other kinds of interesting consumer Experiences. And so that's why this year now there's a VR and AR and uh, big data and AI and all of those hot buttons are included in the celebration because it's, it's only fitting. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. I think it's kind of fascinating, right? Just how everything kind of ties in together now. And it's just, your, to your point, kind of throughout the show is like, everything kind of just works and plays off each other and kind of they all merge together now and it's it's quite exciting and and i'm looking forward to actually being at the the media excellence awards on the 18th in in la and uh you know i look forward to kind of meeting you in person but i think we should close the show with kind of mentioning where people can get more information about yourself and you know the itv uh alliance and uh anything else you want to mention yeah, you know, I think the easiest uh, thing is just people can either email me or link in. It's just Allison Dollar. And uh, my email is Allison, A-L-L-I-S-O-N, at itvalliance.org. Or, you know, honestly, you can keep Google me. I'll come up. Sure. And um, 
happy to hear from anybody. I'm always interested in in knowing what's going on and uh, love to meet people that are also like-minded. I think, you know, the, the overarching watchwords here are keep an open mind and realize that when you have a, a digitally connected universe, that the structure of the business and the strategy around it has to be equally fluid. And, you know, it, it's uncomfortable to think that things are um, not always able to be directly in a spreadsheet. But that is the world we live in now. And um, we should embrace it and have fun with it because there's so much great stuff coming out here. And even the next five years, it's going to be uh, quite a quite another leap forward in terms of how this Internet of Things and all of these converge. It's, it's going to be pretty exhilarating, in my opinion. No, I, I 100% agree with you. I'm, I'm really fascinated by how kind of all this stuff's going to play out. But Allison, again, I really appreciate you taking the time on your day to be on the show, and I look forward to meeting you in person next week, and have a good rest of your day and time at CES. Likewise, Kevin. Thank you so much for your time, and I'll see you next week. <laughs> Sounds good. We'll talk soon. Okay, bye. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Please visit the show's website at buildingthefutureshow.com. Also check us out on Facebook at Building the Future Show and follow us on Twitter at Building Show. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.